Welcome back, everyone. And if it works to have your video on, for me, it's nice to be able to see people. If that can work for you. So I want to continue this week, um, as I planned from last time, to continue with the exploration of bringing our practice <clears throat> into situations of differences and conflicts. I mentioned that somewhat mysteriously and coincidentally, the weekend after the attacks in Israel, uh, I taught a weekend on bringing wisdom, empathy, um, skillful speech, and, and skillful speech to differences and conflicts that was scheduled, you know, eight, nine months in advance. And so we explored that and, and the, you know, the connection was, uh, you know, was very poignant. So I want to, you know, so I thought I wanted to explore this whole area of how do we bring our practice to differences and conflicts. And what I'll maintain is that the same principles apply in terms of practice, whether we're talking about an inner conflict should I stay with this job? Should I stay in this relationship? Or, you know, maybe of a less intense kind of inner conflict, should I, uh, uh, should I take a walk or take a nap? <laughs> right? Could that could be an intense conflict sometime. Maybe not. Um, and also there are interpersonal conflicts as well, that we have some more intense, some less intense conflicts in groups or organizations, as well as larger conflicts within a society or, you know, more internationally. And I'm going to maintain, as I did last time, that the principles and practices for being skillful with differences and conflicts are the same, whether it's a so-called small difference or conflict or whether it's something large. What that means is that we can continue to train and practice with differences and conflicts that are more workable, that are less uh, intense or less large and complex. Because I'll say the principles are the same and the, the core of my teaching today will be to continue to explore what I'm talking about this week as nine foundations for skillful work with differences and conflicts. Last time I think I had eight, but I added one. Or actually I, I separated uh, into two, uh, one that I had just as one last week. And, uh, you know, the approach to working with differences and conflicts, not surprisingly, will be integrative of what we might call our inner practices and our outer perspectives and skills and strategies. In other words, when we look to how to work with differences and conflicts, we have to bring in both uh, more inner practices, I focused on those last time, and outer strategies, principles, approaches. So I want to today want to review what uh, briefly what I explored last week and then go further today into some of the more uh, interpersonal and group uh, principles and strategies for working with differences and conflicts. And I will say that uh, 
I believe that this could be a six-week or a six-month or maybe six-year training. There's a lot of material here, and I, I may be developing for Spirit Rock a longer training, you know, in which we work with these, because each of the nine foundations we could take a week or a month with, you know, there and, and go into much more depth. I think you'll you'll see that. So I apologize a little bit in advance for the way that we, uh, you know, the way that we will be today going over these more in giving an overview and some, you know, well, we will do some experiential work today to try, try to ground it in our experience. So it's helpful, I think, as I mentioned last time, right from the beginning, to give a definition of conflict that goes away from many of the connotations that we have for conflict that often make us not want to deal with conflict. We often think of conflict as necessarily involving hostility or aggression or even violence. Uh, how many people have that sense of conflict as involving those? You know, and, and sometimes they do, obviously. But we often have that sense in a way that makes us not want to deal at all with, uh, with conflict. And I think it's helpful at the beginning to give a different definition of conflict, which focuses more on differences. And so there can be a more neutral way to look at conflict as involving a difference of values or goals or strategies or interests or what's important, right? You know, and I, I think I gave last time the example of two partners. One has been at home all day. The other one has been out of the home. And what do they do for dinner? Do they, uh, one person wants to go out to eat and the other one def definitely doesn't want to do that, wants to stay home, right? And so we could see that as a conflict. And what we would want to do was to see what are the underlying interests or needs, and this is previewing some of what we'll do later, is there a way of finding what we'll call later a win-win solution where we meet the needs of both as best we can, right? And so that's, that's a simple example. Or I want to paint the front door of my house. And, um, you know, should I paint it this color or that color? Again, two people have different views. And if we just stay at the level of what we might call the positions, I want, you know, I want to go out. I want to stay home. We could have a conflict that actually could be not so pleasant, right? The skill will be in looking at what are the underlying interests and needs, right? And same thing with what color should I paint the house? And one person says bright red and the other one, or the door and the other one says light blue, right? And if we just get it, we could get in a, you know, a little bit of a bitter conflict but if we look at what are the underlying values or needs or interests represented by the blue or the red, then we actually have potential of getting somewhere. I'll come back to that. And so that's a way to, to look at conflict. And when we actually don't look carefully at the needs or the values or the interests, in the worst case scenario, we get violence or when we don't want to look at the needs of all concern, it's very common, we get violence, right? And uh, this is from one of the people who I've studied uh, conflict with, Johann Galtum, who I'll bring back later, who's uh, uh, originally from Norway and taught a long time at the University of Hawaii and was the founder of peace studies, so really, uh, remarkable person and, and scholar and activist as well. I'll bring in a story from him later. He said, conflict is a contradiction 
between goals, and it's dangerous when it leads to violent behavior and hateful attitudes. Unresolved conflict may turn violent, but the search for acceptable and sustainable solutions is also an opportunity to create new reality. We get violence and war when conflict is handled badly and peace when it is handled well. But the capacity to handle a conflict relation rests with persons, actors in general, and countries. A major task in today's world is to increase that capacity through a conflict transformation culture, stimulating constructive, concrete, creative ideas in a culture of peace. A culture of peaceful conflict transformation is a key component. Deeply, deeply needed in the world. And Galtung actually wrote manuals for the UN, which uh, I don't know how widely read they are. That's another story. And so we, again, can think of some of the many conflicts in the world. You know, it's sad. But again, what we're wanting to do is to keep a vision. There's a very beautiful, powerful vision of skillful work with conflict. And I think it's important to keep that going. And I'll bring in, you know, some stories of those who have had that vision, even in difficult situations, including the current conflict in Israel-Palestine. And so the invitation really is to, you know, to keep widening our sense of spiritual practice. Often we may start with our sense of spiritual practice as just about inner practice, about meditation, becoming more peaceful, more calm, more able to come to balance and equanimity. And that can be a starting point. But eventually, this is certainly my vision, we want our spiritual practice to include all the parts of our lives, including our relationships, our work, our participation in larger groups, organizations, and our being citizens, you know, citizens of a particular uh, country, citizens of a particular world, our world. And so, and we have, uh, we have many examples in all traditions of great beings who have widened that sense of spiritual practice and brought it, brought them, brought spiritual practice into difference and conflicts. You know, uh, the Buddha did this himself. The Buddha often intervened to work with conflicts in his, in his world. More recently, we can think of the beloved uh, Vietnamese teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, who, you know, he did not, you know, ultimately succeed in his quest during, you know, during the Vietnam War to end the violence and bring peace. But he had a very beautiful, powerful movement, which we can keep learning from. Or we can think of, you know, uh, Gandhi or King or Dorothy Day. And actually we find within, within um, all of the great religions and spiritual approaches from indigenous traditions to Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so forth, we can find examples of those who have really brought uh, a sense of uh, having spirituality also address differences and conflicts. You know, from the Jewish prophets to Jesus to the prophet Muhammad, to more contemporary figures like the ones I mentioned, uh, Gandhi or King, and they have had visions that are very relevant today. Very, 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 very relevant. From Gandhi talking about, yes, the British should get out of India, but we want them to leave as friends, right? That was his, that was his vision. Or Dr. King, with the civil rights movement having the vision of the beloved community, you know, where those who formerly had were on, quote, the other side would eventually become members of the same beloved community. So this was, this was the vision that he had. So in the talk, I'll, I'll briefly review 
some of what we looked at last time, and then look at uh, including the principles or the foundations I looked at last time, which were more about inner practice, and I'll, then I'll go further to identify some ways of practicing interpersonally. And what I'd like you to do is maybe think right now of a conflict in your own life. Think of one that's more in the workable range, maybe an interpersonal conflict or an individual conflict, like should I you know, keep this job, do this or that. Take a moment right now and think of a conflict, and I'd like you to keep this in mind throughout the rest of the talk and discussion. So take a moment right now, think of a conflict. Again, doesn't need to involve hostility. Maybe something that happened in the last week or two, an interpersonal conflict, something more in your everyday life. And that on a scale of one to 10 in terms of level of intensity is more in the middle. Could be something that happened a while ago. How many people have identified a conflict in your own life that you can use as a reference point? Okay. Yeah, great. Okay. So let's continue to um, bear those in mind. So I'll go, first I'll talk briefly about what I talked about last time, which is um, a number of reasons why for many of us, maybe most of us, being with conflicts is difficult. The first was that sometimes in conflicts, often we have difficult emotions, we have reactivity, we have difficult interpersonal moments, and that's a reality. I'll come back to that. You know, that'll be one of, one of the foundations. We'll be working skillfully with difficult thoughts, emotions, body states, and so forth. So first reason that conflicts are difficult for many of us is that we have difficult experiences during conflicts, many of which we don't like. We don't want them to be there. A second reason is that we have, uh, most or all of us have strong conditioning. Probably the majority of us, I think we checked last time, the majority of us have conditioning to avoid conflict, to sort of get out of conflict, not to want to go into there. A lot of that comes from our upbringing, you know, what happened in our childhood. That was certainly the case with me. I grew up not wanting to deal with conflict and getting a sense that it was scary, right? And we, I think we looked and saw last time that the majority of the people there last time had something like that. The other main conditioning is what we might call to when there are conflicts to act out, you know, and that, you know, to when there's a conflict, just to get right into it, let whatever thoughts come out, come, you know, not to be careful, not to be skillful, just to, you know, kind of indulge in whatever is coming through. And that's, again, that's the conditioning for some people. How many people have something like that conditioning? You know, it looks like some, but, but uh, you know, a minority. But I think in generally in the population, it's probably half and half, you know. So again, that is not avoidant of conflict, but it's not necessarily skillful with conflict. And a further reason that uh, conflicts are difficult, really related to what I said is early just now, is that often in conflicts, and we'll, we'll come back to this, we have a sense that uh, in every conflict there has to be a winner and a loser, right? It's almost like the, you know, the war analogy or even the sports analogy, you know, and um, you know, and we'll see that a key to a skillful way to approach conflict is to think of there being a win-win possibility, where what's important for both sides is realized. Again, our usual conditioning is to think that there is, has to be a winner and have to be a loser. 
I remember a number of years ago when, when there was a tie in the baseball all-star game, a large number of people freaked out. There has to be a winner. Right. And uh, again, I'm, I'm being a little bit playful there, but I think, you know, we, we often have that approach where we think that, oh, there has to be a winner or loser. We take sides, right? You can see that happening even with uh, Israel-Palestine. We take sides. We take the sides of one or we take the side of the other, you know. And we can see that in our own uh, interpersonal conflicts, right? How many people notice tendencies in an interpersonal conflict? Oh, I'm going to be right, right? Anyone notice that at times? Very strong tendency. So that's another form of conditioning. We are, have not been taught about the possibility of a win-win approach to conflicts. And then related to that is a fourth difficulty or a fourth reason that, we, that conflicts are difficult to us based on that wanting to take sides, we come up with stories, narratives, positions in which I'm right, you're wrong, right? Very, very common. Uh, you know, often blaming the other. Sometimes we do that in the opposite way. We blame ourselves, right? How many people have been in conflicts where we blame ourselves? You know, we go into that. Again, there is sort of a, um, you know, a winner and a loser. And then a last reason is that we get attached to the outcomes in conflicts. We get overly attached to the outcome. So last time we looked particularly at four more inner foundations. Again, recognizing that we could take uh, a week or a month with each of these. The first was to look more carefully at our own conditioning around conflicts. It really follows from what I said. How much do we have those tendencies, the several tendencies I just mentioned, when conflicts arise to be avoidant or the opposite to be indulgent? How much is our conditioning to see conflicts in terms of winners and losers? How much is it to, you know, get into positions where we blame ourselves, where we blame others? get into stories and narratives in which there's one right side and one wrong side. And that's the end of the story. So the first foundation is to look carefully at our own conditioning. Again, we could, we could do that in more depth if we wanted to. A second foundation is to work with some of the teachings of the Buddha about conflict and about uh, what happens when there is reactivity. And I, I presented particularly the teaching, which I, I present a lot in our, in our Wednesday gatherings, the teaching of the two arrows. Remember how, how many people remember that, the teaching of the two arrows? Yeah, and that's, that's a fundamental teaching for us. It's basically saying, when I have something unpleasant occurring, if I'm not mindful and I'm not wise, when I have an unpleasant experience, we call that the first arrow, I will tend to shoot a second arrow at myself or at others or at both as if that would help, right? I have someone says something that I don't like. If I'm not mindful and aware and skillful, I will instantly just shoot back something uh, unpleasant to the un other person, right? How many people can recall a conversation where that happened, right? You know, we just, you know, and that's shooting the second arrow. And we can see how that applies to, you know, to even broader conflicts. We have received pain. We will inflict pain on you. That's shooting the second arrow. We can do that through being judgmental of ourselves, being judgmental of others, saying things, doing things of all sorts. And we want to remember that teaching because that's going to be, that's a guide more from the Buddhist tradition that it's possible if we're skilled, if we're a skilled practitioner to be with a difficult situation without shooting the second arrow. That's going to be our sort of our North Star. How can we do that? So we want to remember that teaching, right? 
I have a difficult situation or I see a difficult situation out there that has pain, do I have tendencies to go into reactivity, going into unconsciously, habitually pushing away the unpleasant, you know, at the level of the body, with thoughts, with emotions and so forth, or grabbing hold of what I like. I would say those are two different forms of reactivity, and we want to watch that. You know, we want to look in, we want to look into that. <clears throat> and so that's the second foundation. Yeah, and we can come back and look more carefully at all the foundations. You know, if, if there are any questions arising now, we can come back during the discussion time. The third related foundation is working with difficult states that arise. How can I work with my pain from that interaction I had, my anger, my irritation, my sadness? How can I work with my reactivity? How can I work with the first arrow internally so I don't automatically shoot the second arrow? And that, and so part of the practice we do is having our mindfulness let us know when the first arrow is present. This is not easy, right? And, and let me know, oh, I have the first arrow present. Let me be really careful because I know I'll have tendencies to shoot the second arrow, right? Let me, um, let me, if it's happening in the moment, let me notice that there's something painful happening. Let me, let me have the idea that I will not just say something right away coming out of reactivity, right? Not easy, right? Sometimes the work we do with the difficult emotions happens after the fact. It's hard for it to happen in the moment. And so <clears throat> I may have had a difficult interaction yesterday. I can deliberately bring it up in my meditation and be with the difficult emotions. Let's say I had a difficult interaction. I can bring it up maybe at the end of the day. I bring it up. Okay, what am I experiencing? Oh, there's irritation. Oh, I'm being judgmental of the other person. I'm blaming. Let me be mindful of that. <clears throat> oh, let me stay with that for a while. Oh, there's sadness. Oh, there's anger, right? And let me be with that. <clears throat> and if I do a certain amount of inner work, I may work with the reactivity so it's no longer there. And that ideally I can come back maybe the next day, maybe it takes me a week. I can come back and talk to the other person. Can we talk together? And I can have the talking still be bringing up what was important for me, but not with reactivity. I gave the, the example last time, the example of a coworker doesn't keep an agreement. I go into a lot of shooting of the second arrow. I notice that. I do the inner work with it. I transform the reactivity. It may take some time. And then I come back and I bring up the issue with my coworker not coming out of reactivity. That inner work with the reactivity, with the difficult emotions, is crucial. And it's one of the gifts that we have from our practice. And it really points to how we need to do the inner work as well as the skillful speech with my, with my coworker. And we can talk a lot more about that. And sometimes it's compassion for what's coming up for myself. <clears throat> And then the last foundation I mentioned, and there, again, a lot more could be said about the, the inner work, particularly that sometimes with uh, conflicts, we may have residual dimensions of trauma which get activated. And that's a whole area that we could talk about. Maybe I can come back to that in a future, in a future talk, or, or maybe it comes up in discussion. The fourth foundation is bringing in heart practices. Loving kindness, compassion, forgiveness, equanimity, joy, really, really crucial for keeping us balanced with conflict and for letting us have the resources to be with the pain that's there with conflicts. Conflicts that we're part of or conflicts that may be there um, 
with other people or, you know, more the, the larger conflicts, you know, where there's a lot of pain. Just being with the pain requires compassion. And we really need to train with different forms of compassion practice, really, really crucial. So we explored that last time. I think uh, for the rest of the talk, I want to bring in three further foundations for skillful work with conflict. And I'm going to leave uh, two of them for next time. And probably more, you know, more material that we could also look at next time. I was going to try to finish it all today, but I think that's too much. You know, I have memories of my father often saying to me in regards to my teaching, don't do too much. Don't do too much. Okay. So I'm remembering that now. Okay. Um, so that was, that's a little bit of a conflict. Should I really complete it today? Or should I, should I bring it over further weeks? And there are certain values or interests, and I can have hopefully a win-win solution. Okay, I'll, I'll come to that later. So here's the, uh, the fifth foundation, which I'll go into very briefly, is establishing guidelines and agreements. And this can be something that we do interpersonally. It's something very important in groups or organizations to have guidelines or agreements for how we deal with differences and conflicts. You know, to, uh, to have a set of guidelines. When I work with groups, I emphasize certain guidelines. The starting guidelines, you know, for some groups could be ones you probably can think of. Uh, confidentiality or treating everyone with respect or giving a chance for everyone to talk, right? Uh, you know, being aware if you have tendencies to talk more or talk less. And if you have the first tendency, maybe to hold back a little bit for people who ha have the second tendency, things like that. Um, sometimes uh, bringing mindfulness into a group, right? Being willing to, one group I worked with, uh, one training group I worked with uh, for six months, we had a guideline, agree within the small group of 12 people to work with all conflicts, you know, that arise. It could be that. I taught a retreat on um, Buddhist practice and transforming racism, and we had 24 guidelines <laughs> that were really important. Many organizations and groups do not have guidelines or agreements. And when conflicts arise, it gets messy and divisive. How many people have been in organizations or groups where that's happened, right? Where you don't have skillful guidelines for working with conflicts. I've seen that with a number of spiritual organizations as well, you know, where uh, the organizations, when conflicts arise, it's often a mess even though people have beautiful hearts, beautiful practices. I've seen, that, I've seen that happen a number of times. The second foundation, and we could talk a lot more about that, the second foundation is developing a vision of a win-win model of resolving conflicts. This is where we take every conflict as potentially leading us to meet the needs of everyone in the conflict. So this goes against the conditioning to have a winner and a loser, to take sides, you know, in some way in which only what's important for one side matters, right? Uh, to have stories and narratives in which we blame one person or one side. This is, this is a model which comes out of a lot of different locations. I learned a version of it from Johann Galtung. And it's all, there's also a very, uh, very influential project connected with uh, what's called the Harvard Negotiation Project. And we talk about this as the win-win model or the both-end model of conflict transformation. Actually using a word like conflict transformation rather than conflict resolution, because often the underlying 
differences don't get fully resolved. They have, you have to keep negotiating with them. So let me, let's go to our uh, slide, uh, Carlita. And this is from Johann Galtung. And we'll just go down this. I'll just read this. We can start. Uh, the starting point is an analysis of how conflict appears between two diametrically opposed sides. This, this is following up what I said. In such a conflict, there seem to be simply two incompatible goals. Either one side wins and achieves its purported goal, or the other side wins. It is good versus evil, righteousness versus the oppressor, me versus you. And again, different, different situations, interpersonal or um, inner conflict or a larger conflict. And Galtung symbolizes this situation with a grid, with a vertical and horizontal axis. There are two points, A or B. Either A wins, the vertical axis, or B wins, the horizontal axis. Now, the beginning for seeing this differently is to see that in every conflict, there actually are three further outcomes that are possible. The first is having a compromise. And we have to, to get into this, we actually have to start to see what are the underlying needs or interests or values of side A or side B. Then we can see, is there a kind of a compromise? Is there also, sometimes we can't go right away to compromise, but we can go to avoidance of the actual conflict occurring. That's symbolized by D, and that actually is something positive. Avoidance of the conflict when there's a raging conflict interpersonally or in an organization, just having something like almost like a, a ceasefire stopping the active conflict can actually be very, very skillful. That's important to remember because we don't usually think of that. And then uh, the E symbolizes the win-win approach, where the needs of both sides, as it were, are realized together. And, you know, the, you know I, I've been actually sometimes, uh, a number of times, done mediations. Typically, sometimes, once I did it with a group, a number of times I've done it with individuals. And what I, as a mediator, found myself doing very intuitively was intuitively I would get a sense of what the was important for let's say the two people and I would start to have a sense developing intuitively of what E might be, what might be a win-win model. Okay, so let's let go of the slide now and let's go to our third Actually, it's, this is the seventh foundation, which is the foundation in empathy and even compassion. And this will build with, on some of what we explored in the uh, material in July and August on wise speech. Do you remember our work? How many people remember the work we did on empathy? Okay, so some of us do, some, some not. And so really grounding in em em empathic listening is going to be one of the foundations. So empathy, I mentioned um, when we covered it, uh, when we were looking at wise speech, is the innate capacity to tune in to another person. I mentioned how the neuroscience shows how we do that in three main ways. We can tune in at the level of emotions. That's the usual meaning we have for empathy, but actually empathy goes beyond that. We can tune at an, in at a more cognitive level, knowing what's meaningful for another person, knowing what you know, their way of understanding something is. That's a second dimension of empathy. And a third dimension of empathy is to tune in actually at the level of the body. These are all occurring automatically just by the normal working of the brain. You know, uh, we actually tune in and we have a sense of what's going on at the level of the body for the other person. I mentioned last time 
that because, not last time, but when we looked at empathy earlier, that because empathy is innate, it's not necessarily connected with trying to understand and be uh, benevolent towards the other person. That empathy is happening all the time, and a psychopath has empathy. That's interesting, right? A psychopath can tune into another person and use that understanding for negative purposes, let's say. Uh, a politician can know what other people are feeling and use that understanding manipulatively, right? And that occurs at times with politicians. Anyone notice that? Okay. okay. Uh, maybe more than a little bit. Okay. And so I like to talk about empathy as a practice where we're using that innate capacity deliberately to understand and connect with another person, right? And so, and I, the, um, the way of practicing empathy that I developed comes out of the work I've done uh, combining wise speech with nonviolent communication. And so I used, I've used a, uh, the model of nonviolent communication, of empathy as particularly tuning into what other people, uh, other people's emotions are, and then also what their underlying needs or interests or values are. And so we tune in to the emotions, we tune into is there anger, is there sadness, is there joy, all the whole range of emotions, and that, that's probably not hard to understand. And then what, the, what's, what are called needs or what matters for another person isn't always so clear. So let's go with the slide, Carlita, that brings up the needs inventory. We'll do that. Okay. And this is from Nonviolent Communication developed by Marshall Rosenberg. I've, brought, I've used this a number of times on Wednesdays. And this is, this is just to familiarize ourselves that we want to tune in to what the needs might be of another person or another side. And so we can see that a number are listed here. And these are taken actually to be universal for all human beings, physical well-being, connection with others, cooperation, autonomy. Uh, let's keep on, let's keep it where it was just now. Uh, yeah, honesty, peace. And there, there are others further on down, autonomy, freedom, and so forth. And so the important thing about these needs are a few. One is that in nonviolent communication, it's taken that every action that someone takes is actually coming out, even if it's a very skillful action, even if it's a violent action, is coming out of some connection with a need. And there's a very important distinction between a need or what matters and a strategy. The strategy can be very unskillful. I may have a need for, um, I think I gave the example a few weeks ago, I am a facilitator of a meeting and I'm a kind of a control freak. I have a need which is very valid for efficiency, meeting the objectives of the group, and I I act in a way which doesn't, which is overbearing and controlling, right? And so my strategy can be very unskillful. There might be alternative ways to be efficient, right? That would be more respectful. Another example of a, a need, I, I have a great need for peace. I have a lot of difficulty in my life and I drink a lot of alcohol. I get drunk, I get addicted to alcohol, my deep need is for peace. If I'm being empathic with, let's say, a relative who has a drinking issue, if I only focus on the strategy, I may be very judgmental. If I can have empathy and say, okay, the person really wants peace, then I can actually find some way to work with the situation. So let's drop this slide and then go now to the empathy map. This is something we've used before. Bring back your 
your memory of the conflict in your own life. And what we're going to do is something we, I think, have done before, is to look at the look at this map and think of, and if you have a piece of paper handy, you could do this. We can have these four quadrants. What Think of the difficult situation. And let's go down a little bit, Carlita, so we see all the four quadrants. Yeah, great. And let's, you can, you can do this, let's take a minute or two. Think of the situation involving a conflict. Can I be empathic towards myself? What am I experiencing in the conflict? What matters for me? And then what are the other person's emotions? What matters to the other person? Do this right now with a conflict. If it was an inner conflict, have one of your needs be with two of the quadrants and then one of the needs with the other two. Take a few moments right now and do this. If you have a piece of paper, you could write it down. And just write down one or two emotions, one or two needs, not to make it too complicated. Just take, a, take, take about another minute. Okay, let's let go of the slide now. How many people were able to work with that, you know, the four quadrant sum? Great. Let me just close by saying that I think that this, something like this empathy map is a central key for working with conflicts. Even a large, complex, intense international conflict like Israel-Palestine, that basically the win-win model, at whatever level we apply it, is about looking for ways to meet the needs of all concerned, including when there are major, severe uh, power asymmetries, you know, as there are in Israel-Palestine. You know, and I remember a training with Galtung, and he said one of the main things that he wants to do when he works with conflicts, is to find ways to make the power asymmetries or the power imbalances less, whether it's in an organization or, you know, in a, in a larger conflict. So I think I'll, I'll close with a few examples actually coming from the Israel-Palestine situation, which have been inspiring for me. You know, and these are very much minority views. You know, my my friend, and, uh, who's a, a Buddhist teacher in Israel, who's done a lot of collaborative work with Palestinians, he talks about keeping a small flame burning. You know, sometimes in some situations, the vision of the win-win solution to a conflict is a minority view, it's on the margins. You know, we could think of that being the case in South Africa in 1985. It was a minority view, but look what happened, right? You know, in other situations, it was a minority view. You know, uh, people who thought that uh, the um, Berlin Wall might come down, you know, it was a minority view, but things sometimes happen uh, quickly. So this is a very much a minority view, but it's important to keep this vision going. And so I'll give a few, just two examples to close. You know, one is, uh, I mentioned last time, friends who are uh, Buddhist teachers in Israel who are going almost every day to the West Bank and helping with the olive harvest with Palestinian friends. And doing that 
almost every day, bringing Israelis, having Israelis and Palestinians, even at this very difficult time, collaborating, sharing uh, the pain of the situation. Here's, here's the language that they used. As well as supporting the Israeli community, the Buddhist community, we are going into the West Bank almost daily to support our beloved Palestinian friends in the olive harvest. We are joined by a few Israeli friends every day. It is not much, but it makes a difference. It is easier to hold all this tragedy together and to nourish in each other and in the world our strong commitment to a better world. And then I'll close with a Palestinian voice. This is coming from the, again, very much uh, marginalized uh, number of Palestinian nonviolent activists who used to be much more powerful, but they were actually very much marginalized, unfortunately, by the Israeli government in a number of ways I, I could talk to. This is from Mubarak Awad, who was a leader of the first Intifada in the late 1980s, a nonviolent activist from, from Bethlehem. And he says, I urge Hamas and the Israeli government to agree to an immediate ceasefire, including an immediate halt to rocket attacks towards Israel and Israeli military attacks on Gaza. Each party must stop using violence and must commit to living and working with each other as neighbors. Both are motivated by perceptions of security and historical identity. Maybe I'll have one more Palestinian voice. This is uh, Ali Abu Awad. Nonviolence is the art of our humanity. We should not allow our pain to blind us to what is most needed. Mutually guaranteed sovereignty, security, and dignity for both Israelis and Palestinians. That's the win-win vision, right? Which seems far away now. But again, I'll, I'll, I'll say that we learn more and more about this vision by practicing it in the small things of our daily lives. That's how we get, that's how we learn about it. That's how we develop more faith and confidence that it actually can be brought into groups, organizations, families, and the whole world. You know? So thank you for your kind attention. And let's just uh, pause for a few moments, see what's there for you. And then we'll come back with some discussion. So see what resonated with you, see where there are questions, see what the emotions are. So please let me invite any sharing, any questions, and uh, please, uh, Chess. Thank you. What if one is dealing with a psychopath? Yeah, what if one is dealing with a psychopath or, or let's say someone, maybe not a psychopath, but who is just, uh, is just violent, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's an important question. It gets into really uh, a complexity. I think there is a place for stopping, sometimes even using force from stopping someone like a psychopath uh, from acting, you know, it's a it's a complexity of all this, right? That that there, I think there's a place, and I think this came up with, you know, this was a question also asked of Marshall Rosenberg in Nonviolent Communication. You know, is there a place sometimes for intervening with some degree of force? And I think he said there are extreme situations where that's needed. So thank thank you, Chess, for bringing up that that complexity and how we designate those situations, that, that's complex as well. But thank you very much. That's really adds something important to the discussion. Um, Nancy, please. 
um, this is going to be a little bit lighter. Uh, in your discussion of the reasons for conflict avoidance, I have two others that are important for me. One is deference to authority. Yeah, yeah. And the other is the fear that engaging in conflict will make people not like you. Yeah. But those are two for me. And then as far as group agreements, when I was a second grade teacher, um, I learned, I forget the source, I learned a very simple conflict resolution process. And we had in my classroom a conflict resolution corner. And the steps to be followed were posted on yeah. the wall of, of a cabinet. And, it, and at first I had to guide the kids through the process. But eventually, if something came up, I would just say, you guys need to go to the conflict resolution corner and they could go there and follow the steps and come up with a peaceful solution to the problem yeah. that they were having, which was, which was very empowering for them. And I actually used that exact same process in a, uh, a bicycle coalition board meeting where we had two very powerful men who were at loggerheads over how to handle some particular issue. And so we stopped, took a break from the meeting. I took the two of them outside. I taught them the steps that they needed to go through. To And I said, if, if my second graders can do this and come to agreement in peace, I think you guys can do it too. That's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, maybe actually easier for the second graders. <laughs> probably was. It probably was. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I've had several students who have done conflict uh, transformation work in uh, I think middle schools particularly you know and it's so crucial to have this all of what you know we're exploring here what would that be like if that was part of the education you know from age five if not earlier right yeah and so beautiful and thank you also for the additions to some of the reasons why conflict is difficult I think deference to authority Right. That's a, that's a huge one. I, you know, if I'm in an organization, do I want to bring up a conflict if it might uh, cost me something, threaten my job even, right? That's, that's a huge uh, issue, you know, that, uh, that thank you for that. And then the, the other one, you know, a sense that if I bring up something painful or difficult, people won't like me, right? That, that's also, I think, huge. It, it, it probably would depend more on kind of more associated with if I have a conflict avoidant conditioning, that'd be more likely because um, people with a conflict indulgent conditioning might think, oh, people will like my spontaneity. I'll just get right into it. <laughs> that could be, could be the case, right? Okay, thank you so much. Okay, okay other, other sharing or... Um, questions? Maybe sharing how many people when you did the empathy map uh, had new insights? Anyone want to share that? Anyone want to share what you came up with uh, with the empathy map? That might have been uh, interesting. Yeah, Anna, please. Um, oh, am I already unmuted? You're good, yeah. Oh, that was fast. Um, it helped me because it kind of put clarity to the conflict. It's a simple conflict with my brother. I have still stuff at his apartment. He's very angry at me for not having picked it up. And just writing it down that he's angry, I'm looking for peace, and that all he wants is for me to pick his things up, which are on a different continent, so it's not that easy. Um, <laughs> but it somehow, it somehow made it a bit lighter, just to write it down. Very much, just, yeah. yeah. It can it can be revelatory. And if we were, if I had taken more time and you know had you had the handout with needs uh, and so forth, we actually could even be more precise about. Uh, you know, the deeper needs, like maybe he wants, uh, you know, uh, what, more order in his house, you know, or something like that. Well, he generally wants that, and I'm a small part of the disorder, right. um, but it's very easy for him to aim his anger at me. That's right, um, yeah. That's the bigger picture. But um, it, the clarity helped also to not get lost in the emotions. Yeah. Because yeah. I was getting very 
annoyed about the conflict and I didn't see anymore how really it's kind of easy to resolve it. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, just a little exercise like that, which can take three minutes, can make a huge difference with any number of conflicts. And of course, some conflicts are more complex, don't just involve two people, etc. We you know, could, could make a more complex model, but so many just doing that brief exercise for a few minutes, and it can be really, really helpful. So thanks, Anna, for yeah. being willing to share. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And let's have Alan, uh, last one. Yeah, please. Hi. Hi. Um, you know, it, it, it's helpful to um, think about what other people need in a situation. And then I guess, you know, the first thing you started with today was about, should you stay in this job? Yeah. And, uh, and I'm just thinking about strategies that, you know, some people, their whole way of, of managing you is, um, is negative feedback, corrections, right. and criticism. right. Like, what do you do with that? Like, you know, you make you may work through something with yourself, but it's like, if that's really the way it is, are you, you know, can you ask someone to be changing how they operate? Because it's just, um, I, I guess I just don't know. I feel like you come into a workplace and that's what the game is. No, that, that's like, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that's great. For, for one thing, uh, Alan, thanks for pointing that out because it, it's also where... Um, we're looking at when um, asymmetry of power makes finding the win-win model much more difficult, right? Remember I said yeah. that Galtung, when he works with conflicts, one of his main aims as a mediator is to find ways, and there are interesting ways to do this, where the power imbalance or the power hierarchy is changed some. And so, um, you know, so when you go to that situation, let's say I have, you know, but I think it's helpful to kind of map out, you know, maybe the conflict with the, what, whatever you call it, a, a boss or a superior, I, I'm not sure the language you would use, but let's suppose you would, it's still helpful to map that out because you could see your, you know, your, you know, if I would interpret what you're saying and correct me if this isn't accurate, but your interest or your deeper need is for, let's say, learning and improvement, right? Right. And actually, you would probably find that the bosses, let's say, uh, deeper need might be learning and improvement. But the strategy is the problem, right? Right. Right. It doesn't it doesn't work for you and maybe large number of other people or other people in the organization. And so that when you do that map, that can be helpful to see that you actually may have similar goals or interests may, may not you'd have to I, I think we do and that's the thing it's like yeah this is this is probably the way she was raised yeah you know? and so and, then it'd be a matter of again it's going to depend a lot on the relationship could you find a way to ask for a discussion like this in which and you here you would do your inner work so that you were as little caught in reactivity as possible and just, you know, and come from an empathic place, maybe, you know, if I was advising, I would probably say start with empathy towards, is it okay to call, talk, speak of your boss? Is that the right language? Uh, manager. Yeah. Manager, okay. Yeah, let's say empathy towards what your manager wants, and then maybe come from just saying, you know, I really also really want to improve and do better and so forth. But I, um, you know, I'm, uh, I know for myself, hearing it in, one, uh, in, in this way might really help, right? That may or may not work, but that would be with some managers that would work, right? May or may not work with this person. But some, you know, basically as much as possible coming from reactivity. And again, it's harder because of the power asymmetry. You know? Right. And in some yeah, more, I, some I, more, I could imagine going into a discussion like that and just being cut off right away. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, that's, and should I just try to write the notes so that at least it's all out and she can read it or not? Or is that yeah. actually that's that avoiding? It's also asking the question, uh, what kind of risk am I taking even in communicating? Right, right exactly. No, I mean, it. 
it, you really got the, your finger on it. It's like it's like the culture of the workplace is kind of represented by us. Right, right. So this is where you know, potentially, you know, I don't know the workplace, but in some workplaces, something like a union could be a help, or a, you know, a cooperative where where it wasn't just you as an individual talking to the manager, but maybe. So that that might also be a strategy that might be helpful. What what would it be like? Not if only you speak to the manager, but you have uh, half the people who are working talk about this. That might be different, and it would take away some of your risk. You know, so those are a few ideas. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, but it's. I always feel um, moved by your um, advice and your speaking. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Alan. Very, and again, I thank very, you. I feel you really get things on such a quick and deep level for me. So oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You know, and, and again, thanks for pointing out the kind of situation. Um, you know, which involves the uh, power, you know, the power asymmetry. So it's a big one. It's, it's a big one. And obviously it's one of the most central things with Israel-Palestine, to, not to mention many other conflicts. So it's really helpful just to remember that that makes things very, very hard. It's way easier between equals. Yeah. Although still can be very hard. Okay. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much. So let's close by inviting a moment of quiet. What, were, what was my learning from today and how might I want to take it forward? Might I want to work in some of the ways we've explored with conflicts? Again, conflict can just mean a difference in you know, what to do this evening. How might I bring this forward in the next few weeks? And we close with a dedication of merit, may the fruits of our time together be offered to ourselves, to all of us, to everyone in our own lives and our own circles, and then beyond these circles. May the fruits of our time together be offered to all beings, to all challenging, conflictual situations in the world. May we offer the benefits of our time together to all beings, including ourselves. So thank you, thank you, thank you again for your kind attention. If you want to unmute, we could hang out for a little bit. Thank you, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Donalds. So bad. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Thank you, Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Sanka. Thank you. Good to see you. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you next week. Okay. Thank you so much. Till next time. Okay. Till next time. Bye bye. Bye bye, everyone. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.